you are listening to Studying Pixels, your much-recommended podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. First of all, maybe thank you so very much for the kind words and the feedback and the clicks we've received on our very first episode. I know it's not it's not something to be taken for granted that, you know, there's some buzz and some attention for a podcast's <laughs> first episode. Normally, you just shoot it out into nirvana, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you hope. You hope it's not going out into samsara or something much worse. <laughs> uh, but it, was, it, was, uh, it was very nice to wake up to a few Twitter followers. That doesn't happen often. So I thought uh, uh, reading all the responses, it was... Uh, we're, we're both very excited about this project, and it's nice to see that other people are as well. Yeah, I think we're around like 70 Twitter followers at the moment, and uh, Pixel Coon, obviously, that's our tiny super cute mascot, is tweeting diligently. Um, yes. While I personally, I'm currently still playing Yakuza Like a Dragon. I'm not sure whether I've mentioned this uh, on, on Studying Pixels here, but uh, Dan, you've you got the platinum trophy in Like a Dragon. I did. Even though I think you started playing it after I started, but you kind of took me over. Yes, well, I think uh, that speaks more to how I manage my my free time <laughs> in, in the sense that I don't manage it and I let games completely take it over <laughs> most of the time. But yes, I did. And uh, uh, you are currently in the the end game of any JRPG where you are grinding like crazy. Yeah, it's a bit tough, I must say. I really love mm. Yakuza Like a Dragon. And uh, dear listeners, you can probably expect an entire Yakuza episode from us sometime soon. Absolutely. Yeah, we've already been thinking about that. But uh, the grind, my goodness, the grinding is just excessive. It's like you reach the, the credits... And then you get thrown into the post game, which is in itself quite interesting and nice. You got like two more super high level dungeons. But in order to even have a chance, you need to spend several hours just walking around in circles, defeating the same enemies over and over again. And I just find it that's the biggest criticism actually I have on the game. I know it's a I know it's a typical JRPG thing, but I wish they would just, you know, scale it down a little bit so that you can just naturally transition from the cred from rolling the credits into the final challenge, the post-game challenge. I agree. I think that what my my favorite uh way that JRPGs or any game will handle post-game challenges is that it's less about how much time you've sunk into it and more about your uh your strategy yeah. going into it and the grinding element can be, well, it could be a grind a lot of the time. Totally, and yeah. It, yeah, just a time sink. I mean, I'm just, I don't know how you do it because I know you went through the same kind of uh, motions that I'm currently going through. How do you handle such times when you know, okay, you've got, let's say, a good 15 to 20 hours of grinding ahead of you? How do you, how do, you do that? How do you manage to keep at it? I will, uh, when, once I get to that point in a game... Uh, I will put on a, a podcast or an audiobook or listen to music or have a show on in the background or something like that so that the grinding becomes the secondary activity and I'm not focusing all my attention on the game. And I think that especially after a long work day where all I want to do is turn my brain off and, you know, I, I find that um, 
I usually have two games going. One is one, a game that I'm invested in story-wise so that I can devote my entire mind to it. And then another is a, a grind game where, all right, I'm burnt out from work. I'm going to turn it on and just have something to do. And, you know, eventually the time goes by. Well, I think then probably I'm doing things right here because I've <laughs> I've been doing the same thing. I'm listening to a podcast. I remember that back in the day when I did the Platinum Trophy on Final Fantasy X Remastered. Um, oh, sure. I also did a whole lot of grind. It's so repetitive. And I must say, sometimes it can be quite a slog. It can be difficult. But then if I get into the zone, just like you described, if I, I listen to a mm. podcast or yesterday yesterday we had someone over and we had like conversations and on the side I was just doing this, it's a little bit like knitting, you know, just like it, activity yes. you do without having to use your brain. <laughs> it, I, I, I love that analogy. I think that's exactly what it is. Well, as you know, dear listeners, this show is free and independent. We rely entirely on your support, and that is why we offer you something in addition, and that is Studying Pixels Plus. It is essentially our Patreon program. If you decide to support us on Patreon, then you get three wonderful things. First, you get our sincere gratitude and the good feeling that you are supporting an independent show. Secondly, you get a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels. It's really beautiful and features our super cute mascot, Pixel Coon. And thirdly, probably most importantly for most of you out there, you get a monthly plus episode. And this month, we're going to talk about how not to write a term paper. So this is really for all of you out there that either are students or want to become students or just want to think about why you might not have gotten the grades that you thought you should have received. Uh, please, please, please go ahead and check out Studying Pixels Plus. You'd be helping us out a lot, especially in those early days. You can find out more on studyingpixels.com slash plus. And I must say, uh, we, we hope at Studying Pixels that we will become the background noise to the your grinding efforts. That would be really good, right? We could give people <laughs> Wouldn't some... Wouldn't that be great? Oh, you can do it. You can do it. Who's ever listening out there? Keep yeah, going keep it a up. Bit. You just have seven more hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to... Today, maybe we can entertain you a little bit while you do your grinding business um, by talking about friendships and the friends we make. Uh, this is something that has crossed my mind several times. I find friendships in video games super interesting because on the one hand, they are I, I can have super intense friendships with video game characters. And we today we'll be focusing primarily on video game characters. So not so much making friends online or in video games, but rather really bonding, having a parasocial relationship with a character in a game. And on the other hand, uh, the peculiar thing about it is that I feel often that friendships are implemented in a particularly clumsy way in video games in comparison to other media. It's hard to uh, gamify a deep relationship. Really, it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Because you, you need to somehow bring the concept of friendship, which is something that's very intangible, that's very personal, that's very intimate. You need to somehow bring it into a rule structure because, yeah, everything that is significant to the rules need to be, needs to be in some way operationalizable. So you need to right. be able to translate it basically into numbers or into a positive and a negative. You need to somehow, somehow have the code, the game's code, have a grasp of it. And that's why you need something like relationship bars, friendship counters, and such things. 
Well, I think we'd be remiss if we brought up relationship bars or counters and we didn't talk about the Persona series. Oh, yeah. Which I know we're both fans of. Yeah. And um, I I would say that uh, Persona 4 and 5 in particular Mm. are very good examples of how to successfully gamify relationships. They are, yeah. Because in both games, this is basically the Persona formula. You come into a new environment, usually as a high school student, exchange student, whatever. And then you, aside from the big mysteries, maybe we don't have to focus that much on these, on the big mm. murders that are going on and, and mysteries <laughs> that are basically drive the main, the main story. But you come to a new school and you're in the situation that all of us have been in at some point, you don't have anyone and you need to slowly find and build up a circle of friends. It is, I think, one of the uh, maybe the over, one of the more overlooked aspects of the Persona series is that um, when we enter a video game, we are often the outsider coming into a world that exists. Yeah, and we're we're usually the fish out of water in some sense. And Persona takes that and runs with it by making you a high schooler and really saying it's difficult to be in a new a new um, uh, place and a new situation. And so, like you say. I think even uh, in in both four and five, um, really before the big plot begins, the main focus is: are, you have met this person. How is your relationship going to uh, grow and change with them? Whether it's Yosuke in the fourth one or you, uh, Ryuji in the fifth one. Yeah, and those two are also excellent examples because Yosuke and Ryuji, both in Persona Four and Persona Five. I do think it's not a coincidence that both of these are basically outsiders as well. Yes, yes. You basically come into this new world, this new environment, and you bring together a whole bunch of characters that are in themselves outsiders, and they all kind of feel lost. And you need to establish Mm. these bonds and connections to form something like the amazing Phantom Thieves in in Persona 5, basically a party that you're going to go through with the entire game. I think, yeah, that's a a great point because... Uh, there is there is a a sense of um, befriending the outca- the outcast kind of coming together mm. and forming this strong bond, and they both games do it in different ways. But um, generally speaking, the way that you become closer to these uh, people at first is that you you are um, privy to something that they find to be a shortcoming of themselves. You f- you face off against their shadow self, or they have to face off against. Uh, against it and what that means kind of in the in the Jungian sense is that they're coming to terms with a part of themselves that they don't particularly like and so with you sharing that moment with them or seeing them through it that bond is instantly solidified and afterwards it just becomes how do you grow and nurture that friendship after that formative experience so as an example maybe from persona 4 golden which i have very vivid memories of there's a character named kanji i think right that's his name yes he's my favorite character he he (laughs) is amazing and um, can we spoil a little bit about kanji because persona 4 golden is pretty old by now Yes, and Persona 4 even more so. So yeah. I would say if you if you haven't played Persona 4 or 5, now is your chance to... Skip ahead. Just a couple <laughs> did, of seconds. Yeah. I'm just going to say it briefly, but we're not going to spoil anything on Persona 5 because it's a bit more recent. But in, in, okay, in, sure. in Persona 4, the character Kanji is one... He's like a like an, an he's an outsider, an outcast. He's a kind of a hard-boiled uh, rocker kind of 
person. And um, below this is a certain vulnerability due to the, un at least I'm going to say, uncertainty of his sexual orientation. I would agree. Uh, I think that he is, at the very least, thinking about his uh, masculinity versus his femininity. He's he's definitely a questioning character, I would say. He's got a very fragile sense of masculinity, and um, he suffers from that, and he overcompensates. This is a very psychoanalytical game, the Persona series is. Um, <laughs> he overcompensates by being, like, super rough. And over time, by getting to know him, by developing a friendship with him, uh, you can help him come to terms with this kind of struggle. The interesting thing about Persona is it's not like everything is immediately resolved, but characters learn to understand that um, there are pa parts of them that they struggle with accepting, and you can help them with that as a friend, and then you come become closer. And when you become closer, that also means they also become stronger as characters. Like these are these two layers interlink. You hang out with them. You have a cup of like a bowl of ramen with them, you know, or to, you take a walk in winter and have a long conversation, and you make some dialogue choices. And by the end of it, they maybe rank up their character. And then when you go back into the fighting, into the dungeons, then they are stronger as well. Like these two layers interlink, and I think that's a super important, very valuable message. Yes, there, there, and there's something. I think the reason that these games are so successful in doing this is because of that connection that you just described, where it's not solely that you are helping this character with a, an inter, um, internal conflict. It's that by helping them, you then see them get stronger physically in the dungeons when you're actually fighting monsters and things. So there's a tangible effect beyond just the, the personal connection you're forming in the game itself. And while that is, I think, abstracted, of course, it is still somewhat relatable, at least in my experience in daily life, that when you have a mm. friendship, then obviously, if the, if the friendship is a genuine one, then I think you want to help other people in your friendship circle. You want to help them excel. You want to help them yeah. obtain their goals, overcome challenges, and seeing that happen, especially when it's something where people needed support, that is like such a rewarding, such a gratifying experience that ties me very closely to the characters in Persona just as much as it does to people in real life. I can, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, I can hear the, um, the music sting in my head when, uh, particularly in Five, when you've helped a character fully and they, they kind of evolve, you know, as a person. And I think that it speaks to something that I'm, I'm very precious about, which is I love when games um, express gratitude to the player in some way. And I think Persona is very strong because when you get to the end of those relationships where you've helped that character through their, their struggle or through their um, identity issue, what they do is they thank the player character. And there's, you can tell that it's written in a, it's written in a way where it is very genuine and it makes you feel like the time you've spent with them has really affected them in some way. It is a very genuine moment. And one thing, though, that uh, I always struggle with a bit is the fact that whether it's in Persona where you need to, you basically have a dialogue and then you have like a, a dialogue prompt and you have to choose the right option mm. in order to get the friendship points. Or if we want to stir away from Persona a little bit, if you look into life simulations such as the Sims or dating simulations, you know, where you have very right. specific things, very specific criteria that you need to do. To me, it kind of also feels as a very instrumental form of friendship, such as 
you go obviously you go online and you check what is that character like okay it's that in in yakuza like a dragon which we mentioned before i know that yeah. sumire the one who manages like a crafting workshop and um i wanted to try and become a boyfriend she likes bonsai so i'm just going to go ahead and i'm going <laughs> to get like tw- <laughs> That is that is what you're describing is maybe I almost think that like a dragon is doing it as a joke because it is so funny how it's like, oh, I think she likes bonsai. I should give her 50 bonsai. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm just yeah. getting 50 of those and bringing it to her and then like, oh, and then, you know, it's I don't know. I always find that a bit weird. It just I, yeah. I obviously prefer the persona way where it's uh, where they pay a great attention of on the um on the way the dialogue is written to make it a big reward. Mm. Whereas in, in Yakuza, like a dragon, it feels to me more like, uh, oh, you're leveled up uh, fully. Uh, now beat up someone for me and uh, thanks. You know, maybe one day. Yeah. It, it kind of a letdown. Yeah, I can I can, I can, can relate to that. I thought, um, because uh, like a dragon is so, is so tongue-in-cheek generally that when that happened, because you can do that with a number of the female characters and it, it's it, the the reality of it is that Ichiban is basically just handing them, you know, a hundred things yeah. to make them like him, which is a very funny kind of distillation of what you're maybe doing in other games where you're building relationships. But I agree with you. I think that it does um, maybe because of the dialogue options in Persona where, you know, in order to um, further your relationship with that person quicker it, it behooves you to know about that person so that you can think which response would best fit this character's situation. So instead of just kind of winging it or giving them a hundred items, it, it is <laughs> kind of like, oh, well, I feel like I know uh, like Yusuke in Persona 5 or I feel like I know uh, Chie in Persona 4. I, I should say this because this is what I, I would say if I were there. Do you look these things up or, or, or in, in maybe... I ask this way around, do you try and understand the character and go with that? Or do you play more like role play your own character and think about what your own character would say in that moment? That's a great question. Like, are you using it as an instrumental way to boost the friendship level? Or is it something where you say like, no, my character would say this here. I'm going to role play as such. My version of the hero in Persona 4 would say this, right? I think in those are such special cases. I would say that I always try to and maybe this is this is an interesting facet of why it works so well for me um i don't i don't particularly have a strong affinity with the main character of persona 4 or with joker even in persona 5 they they truly feel like a, a a vessel through which i am communicating with these other characters so i think in those cases i will specifically say what do what do i think this character either should hear or needs to hear or would like to hear um and less what would i say in this kind of role that i've created for myself what about you how how do you go about it i feel exactly the same way about the the protagonist and i often feel that way about the protagonist especially in these games Mm -hmm. where admittedly like the it's literally just called hero in persona four or joker in, in persona five he actually has a name in the anime because i've recently just watched the anime and um but also a minimum amount of um, contribution to conversations for example um right and i i like that i like when characters are just 
the main characters are just a vessel because the strong friendship relations that I have in Persona are with the other people, are with Chie, with Kanji, are with Ryuji, and so on and so forth. All the other characters that you encounter in the game and bring to your party. But what I do actually do, I must admit to that, when I play Persona, I've got a little bit of a fear of missing out there because I know mm. that if I play through the game... Um, my initial playthrough and I don't manage to level up a certain relationship, then I need to go all the way back to go through to bring that yeah. bring that bar up where I want it to be. So what I do is I look at the decision, I make my own decision in my head, and then I look up which decision is the one that will actually give me the friendship points and input that. And often it's the same, but not always. Yes, I, I do the same thing. So <laughs> I think because I... Those games are very long, and if you want to, if you want to see the uh, the result of all the work that you're putting in, sometimes missing one thing can mean a, a whole lot of backtracking. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I would also say that I care enough to do that because mm. of these characters. In other games, I think, um, you know, I, I, maybe the Mass Effect trilogy. Mm. There are certain characters where, you know, I, I okay, I'll I'll, I'll do this full storyline because I want to see where it goes or something but it's it's more out of a completion idea and less out of a, a duty to the character whereas in the persona games i feel enough of a connection that i'd like to make sure that i see i see it through to the end it, there is also a lot to say about the fact that the games we're talking about at the moment are primarily jrpgs uh, mm -hmm. I also asked on Twitter what experiences are with friendships in video games and got the response like Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch. Um, the Drippy, Mr. Drippy um, commented, a user uh, called Wolf Hoy um, is uh, kind of like a, a fairy tale creature that accompanies you while you're, you're this young boy, you're grieving over the loss of your mother. No spoiler happens directly at the beginning of the game and you are in this yeah. fantasy world. And you find, uh, like, Mr. Drippy in Nino Kuni is such an interesting character because he has this uh, Studio Ghibli weirdness, as in he's first, he's not really an approachable or caring character at first. He's cute, but he's also like, oh, ole boy! <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's very abrasive. Yeah, yeah he's very <laughs> abrasive. He, he pokes a little bit of fun at you, like, uh, why you're crying and so on. Uh, Why are you crying about your dead mom? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> but it's really interesting because in the way that he's he's in such a completely different headspace than Ollie, the protagonist, the young boy is at the beginning of yeah. that game. And you kind of get to know the world of Mr. Drippy and what's really important to him. And over time, these two grow so strongly together that, man, Mr. Drippy is just such a fantastic companion in Nino Kuni. He is. And I, I think <clears throat> you, you mentioned that that strength kind of comes from w the time that we spend with them, you know, and JRPGs, they're not short games. Yeah. And I do wonder to what extent, um, you know, trying to think about how these friendships are perceived or formed when we're playing these games, how much of it do you think is just the time that we spend in the world and with these people? I think it is a significant factor because mm. the more time I spend with them, especially when it's time that is rich with, you know, well-written dialogue, 
then that very much contributes to to bonding and friendship, just like it does in in real life, you know. Uh, of course it can happen that you meet someone and you instantly feel like you have a connection and that's very precious but then what actually comes of it as in developing and building up a solid friendship that really is basically i would say affection and empathy plus time yeah <laughs> we did it we we codified we, it we codified it. we made the formula yeah, <laughs> yeah. and in, well, in such games like like nino kuni and in many jrpgs yeah. it also is important, as we mentioned already, that it has often a structural uh, part. Like in Nino Kuni, for example, you have a, f- a feature that operates similar to something like Pokemon, and it's also present mm. in Persona, where you can um, basically gain the affection of creatures and then bond with them. R- right? Like in, yes. in Persona, you even have like in Persona Five, you have like negotiations of sorts where you yeah. try need to try and match that character. It's all a little bit random and and, and wonky, I would say, but still, I you agree. try to you, yeah. to appeal to their personality. I think yeah, the because Nino Kuni does this too, um, more so than than Pokemon, which is Pokemon is just you know get its health bar down to a certain level and weaken it so you can catch it. But in Persona and Nino Kuni, you do have to. Um, there is an element of convincing them or knowing what they like to try to get them over to your side. And so uh, the idea that every enemy can become an ally Mm. uh, is also an interesting aspect of this gamification of friendship. You know, you, you've, you've fought them, you've figured out their weaknesses, you've, you know, spoken to those weaknesses and now they want to fight with you. Yeah. It's an interesting take on it. And at the same time, again, it always creates this tension for me, this this idea of saying um, you you want to befriend, let's say, a character that is an enemy at the moment. So usually what mm. you need to do is, first of all, you need to beat them up till they are just, you know, <laughs> basically on yeah. their knees. And in all these games, like in, in Yakuza, in Persona, in, in Pokemon, but also in Nino Kuni, I think, um, it all works the same way. Beat them until they're almost done and then befriend them. And then they'll come around and they'll see reason, basically. Is, isn't that a bit of a cynical approach to friendship? It, it is, I think. But what's really interesting is that I wonder how much of this is directly related to um, shonen manga and, and anime. Mm. Because in the whole setup of any shonen enterprise is that you have a main character who has an ability he comes up against uh, or she comes up against other characters with similar abilities who are presented as villains in that first encounter but then after a fight they become close and now they work together the easiest example of this is dragon ball z mm. or dragon ball in general um but jojo's bizarre adventure does this naruto does this uh, all of these shows which i think to your point it does seem a bit strange to present friendship as first you must beat this person up and then they respect you (laughs) (laughs) at the same time though it is very much something that reflects in my daily life experience as well that conflict Mm. can also bring about friendship if you're of profoundly different minds and you are you have i think that's maybe a crucial point the fact that both respect each other enough to acknowledge one's ability the uh, each other's ability and then pit them against one another and see at the end like okay you know it's also about being strong enough for um to have the integrity to admit defeat and saying okay i was wrong about this like if we translate the violence in video games to something a bit more metaphorical in real life maybe i was wrong with this 
then uh, you know you can get along. You know, I'm I'm smiling because that uh, made me think of my my closest friend in college. Uh, it was exactly that situation where I I'm pretty sure we both hated each other, mm. and then we started working together at a school job, and we just started making each other laugh, and you know we realized that a lot of the things that we thought about one another were mutual and we talked them out. And I think that it, so sometimes it is like you say, you meet someone and there's a, a direct connection and that's lovely. And you, you just start off on a friendship, but there are some adversarial friendships that, that start, I think too. Yeah. Adversarial friendships, a wonderful term. And that's literally like <laughs> yeah. 80% of friendships in, in all Japanese video games. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've also got something um, that goes a little bit beyond this because now we, um, we've spoken a lot about friendships that are tied to, um, that are in some way integrated into the video game rules structure. But there are also mm. friendships and portrayals of friendships that are not at least quantified in that way. And I had to think of, you know, close friendship relationships that I had in games that were not in this typical, you know, friendship meter. And then sure. I had to think of Shadow of the Colossus. And uh, the, the Last Guardian also, though in a bit of a lesser degree because of the mechanical clunkiness. But um, if I'm, I think back to Shadow of the Colossus, of uh, me being uh, Wanda, the, like a, a young man who tries to revive the, the love of his life while riding through a vast and empty world, uh, slaughtering several colossi, I suppose. The right uh, yep, plural. I think so. And you ride mm -hmm. on the, on horseback, and your horse is called Agro, and it is such a wonderful, tr wonderfully trusted steed that is always by your side. There's not a single word exchanged. Obviously, it's a horse. Uh, <laughs> and it is. Yeah. It is really. It's really very much a horse in the sense, like it's not like in in Assassin's Creed where horses basically are controlled as if they were like a moped, you know, or like a, a scooter. Yeah, you can hop on any one of them anytime. Exactly. It's You've got this yeah. one horse, and this is an actually existing uh, creature. If you, if you try to go to the left, then it might take a second before the horse actually follows suit because it's a living being. It has its a mind of its own. They tried to implement this even more strongly so in The Last Guardian with Trico. To some success, I would say, but uh, but yeah, that's just that kind of bonding, that kind of bonding that is not really quantified, but it's just there all throughout the game um, that I find incredibly beautiful. I agree. And I think, uh, I mean, incredibly beautiful is what we could say about Shadow of the Colossus in general. Yeah. But that that connection, uh, I, I when I think of that game, I think of um, the music and I think of the visuals mm. and the the visual that I can see immediately in my head and I can almost feel the moment that I saw it is when Wander and Agro are going to this forbidden land mm. and they're they're on this long journey together and I think what that opening scene really uh really tells you is these two are all that they have yeah it is this is it and that connection that you form even though it's a very silent game um, is very, very strong. And I think there is sort of um, something to be said of establishing your your connection to the character um, through their connection to what's around them in the story. 
and Wander is very alone and he only has aggro. So you feel that you only have aggro. Yeah. And you become very close to, to, to that horse. Um, uh, I know we're both thinking about we're, we're something. Think, we're thinking we're thinking the same <laughs> thing. We're not gonna we're not gonna yeah. say it here, but I want maybe I'll you know, something that I find very interesting and very important to emphasize is that within the research on parasocial relationships, that would be the mm. the the academically adequate term for this there is actually clear data on how people are um, properly relating to characters that are not real people, but the relationship that they have mm. and the way they are affected by this relationship is very similar. You can, for example, when you watch Game of Thrones and you are confronted with Joffrey, a very um, mm. despicable king who does very terrible things, you can get really angry with that character to the degree that, um, you know, there are even people who are like, uh, who start to confuse the role with the with the actor, for example, you know, and the people who get right. really angry, the people who, who who say things, for example, to the to the TV screen, which is very understandable, because, you know, it's like our brains yeah. work that way, you know, our brains work in assuming like some kind of mutual communication. And of course, uh, there is also data on characters in long-running series that die and how people and avid fans of the show are actually going through a process of grieving for that because of that character's death i find that very strong yes well i think and and maybe this goes back to it's a function of how much time you spend uh engaging with these characters how much empathy you imbue them with or connection you feel that you have with them but I do think that uh, it's obviously it's a very it's a very real phenomenon. And I think it's it can be very very strong in video games because of that built-in connection that you have by virtue of controlling that that main character or whoever you're controlling. I want to ask you so um, w what you had just uh, talking about sort of like a character death or something. Um, do you have a game that uh, you? you felt so strongly connected to the characters that when it was over, you said, I don't think I'll ever go back to that because of you want to sort of crystallize that, that relationship or that experience that you had. Yeah. I actually have that quite often, especially with games that are heavily choice based. I remember things like the walking dead, um, the telltale oh, sure. game where after seeing, having the credits roll of the last episode, I thought, well, this was my playthrough of it, and I don't want to exchange it for any alternative version of that story. And most, the most recent example maybe where I felt that very strongly was with Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, sure. Yes, that is also a game that is very long. It's super extensive. It is, I would say, if I were, if I had to choose one game where I felt like I was having a relationship with lots of other characters in the world, then I would say Red Dead Redemption 2 is probably the one because I felt like I was part of the gang of the, uh, what was it, Dutch, of Dutch gang? Yeah, yep. And uh, wow, at the at the very end of, of Red Dead Redemption, I just felt like this is, um, this is, a st I, I want to just maintain the memory of this story and uh, and enjoy it. I don't want to replay yeah. this. I also didn't go back and do the, the Platinum Trophy because that would have meant to put in a lot of 
tedium and that would maybe have weakened or changed my relationship with the characters. So I didn't do that. Yeah, I've I've had that experience you just described. I've done that as well, mm. where I've where I've said I'm not going to go back and do the platinum because I know that the grinding or the the tedium as you described it would frustrate me, and I don't want to taint the the image of this game in my head with the frustration at the end of it. <laughs> but what is yours? Usually, when one asks such a question, you have something very specific in mind as well, right? Do you have an example? Yes. Well, I have I have two. Um, one of which is the Mass Effect series, but I did recently come back to that, as we've discussed in previous endeavors. But um, that was one where I didn't touch it for a decade because it was so uh, so personal to me at the time I played it mm. that I, I said, despite all of these um, interesting choices that I maybe could go back and make, I don't want to do that because I feel that that would change my experience. Did it actually change um, your experience when you came back to it? I think it 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 didn't it didn't change that initial experience um but I think it was it was similar to when you uh not when you meet not when you meet up with an old friend but when you maybe watch a video uh or look at photos mm. of of an old experience and you think oh it was as nice as I remember okay you know, I think that was, that was the feeling I had there. And the, the second was, um, uh, as much as I love Persona 5, um, I don't know that I'll, I don't know that I can go back to Royal because it was, uh, it specifically discusses these kinds of relationships we're talking about. And I think to go back and experience it again might be a little greedy, yeah, in my mind, I understand. At Royal, I actually haven't played because um, they do this weird thing with Persona where they come out with this <laughs> upgraded version, like two years later, a year or two years later after the release, and uh, then it's something where you need to purchase the whole thing. Sorry, no, you need to purchase the add-on, but uh, you then need to play through the whole thing again, and it's like a, a game where you can easily spend 120. Uh, hours yes. on the story so i i decided <laughs> that not may to be the other back. reason but what i did is i started watching the persona 5 anime and i can totally confirm mm. your your suspicion because while the the persona 5 anime is not not in itself bad i would say it's not a, not a bad anime and they try to stick as closely to the material as they can obviously they cut out a lot of the fighting usually you'd only see like one fight or something and then it's all a little yeah. bit more abstract but um, the problem is just that Persona 5 is so good and it the, the time that you spend in this world and with these characters, as you have already mentioned, is so crucial that it just can't be captured in a 25-minute uh, episode. It's just too little time. Everything goes super fast where you think like, wow, when, back when I played that in the game, it was like a week where I had worked with this issue and now it's like over in like right. half an hour. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't rec I would say if you're absolutely certain that you're not going to play Persona 5, then of course jump into the anime and enjoy it. But it's not something it's not the best way to enjoy the story. I think that that makes sense to me. I think it all it all maybe we can round things out with uh, this is this is such an interesting phenomenon, and I think that as games get more evolved, um, these relationships also evolve in the way that you interact with these characters. So 
as games progress, I think we've seen we've come, we've come a long way from the joke in like a dragon that maybe if I just give this person a hundred items, they'll like me. Yeah. <laughs> I think the fact that that's played up as a joke says that we've you know we're maturing in that regard. <laughs> Want some bonsai again? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, dear listeners, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do some side questing now. In our side quests, dear listeners, we read the internet for you, do some research, and we talk about anecdotes from, you know, video games we've played, things that we've seen and experienced. And uh, we're going to start this one off with number one, the Activision Blizzard lawsuits, I should say, because there are several and this is a story that we're going to unfortunately have to talk about uh, quite a few times, I assume, in the in the coming weeks and, and months. So I thought it might be a good idea to just um, catch up on the story and talk about some recent news that occurred within the last week. So basically, in recent weeks and months, the publisher of games such as Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, Activision Blizzard has been hit with several lawsuits. And to get the whole picture, um, we have to briefly leap back into, let's say, July uh, this year, where following the reports of uh, multiple women, Activision Blizzard was under the investigation by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing for two years already. So this is a long-running story and a long-running problem and a a big deal i should say the california i mean that uh the involvement of that department is uh, it should be understood that that gives this a lot of gravitas yes. beyond the heinous allegations this is basically if i understand it correctly this would be the state against activision blizzard right yes yes yeah. it's okay. much, much more serious than you know i think some other allegations are uh, that are levied, at least the, the response, I should say. So very big stuff. It's not just like a civil lawsuit and it is something where you don't, th these matters are usually not resolved with a slap on the wrist. Um, but uh, we're not going to go too much into the details. They are partially very grisly. Yes. Um, and we don't need to, we're, we don't need to indulge in that. We're not a true crime podcast here. So, uh, <laughs> but, but what definitely just to give you a brief overview is that these allegations entailed such things like a frat boy culture within the company. They entailed women being actively withheld from uh, receiving promotions to such things like sexual harassment and ultimately um, the suicide of a female employee that allegedly occurred after extensive sexual harassment. So this is, again, very, very serious. And at the time, Activision Blizzard stated, this is a statement I got from an article on Bloomberg Law. By it's, The article is written by Maeve Alsop. And um, Blizzard states here, quote, We value diversity and strive to foster a workplace that offers inclusivity for everyone. There is no place in our company or industry or any industry for sexual misconduct or harassment of any kind. We take every allegation seriously and investigate all claims. In cases related to misconduct, action was taken to address this issue. End quote. So bear in mind, this was like a couple of months ago that Blizzard issued this statement, and it was a statement that was not received particularly well because it is 
a typical corporate state a statement to basically uh, say like, there's nothing to see here. Please move on. We've got everything under control. And I think also something that Activision Blizzard has done, not with similar allegations, but with other issues in the past. So this felt very, you know, uh, okay, you, you put out a press statement of, a, of an apology. We don't, first of all, we don't believe you. We don't accept it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, in such contexts, it is just uh, generally not a good way to act on pure mm. belief, but you want to see actions. And um, to be fair, um, some actions did take place uh, over the course of the last months. Several executives at Activision Blizzard either apologized or even left the company. Mm. There are also indications that um, there are you know, in-game, some in-game references, um, such as in, in World of Warcraft, that are being purged basically that are eradicated from the game uh, in order to remove references to employees that were essentially named in those accusations however on the other hand this is also part of um, part of the story the state of california claims that activision blizzard has not been very cooperative they accuse the publisher of shredding documents that would be pertinent to the investigation this is wow. something that the state of California says they did this. They are not cooperative. Blizzard, on the other hand, says, no, we are cooperative and we didn't shred any documents. So um, we, in all fairness, we can't know whether they did that or they did not do that. But it's definitely an issue that will probably be brought up at some point down the line um, as these lawsuits continue to unfold. Now, one of several lawsuits came to a closure. I think this is the first lawsuit against Activision Blizzard that came to a closure in the last week. Uh, keep in mind, there are many lawsuits. There are lawsuits by the state, by investors in the company who are obviously also not particularly happy about these things. Like this also has tremendous economic consequences. And this one is the lawsuit brought forth by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Activision Blizzard was able to settle the lawsuit as the publisher's statement says, quote, Activision Blizzard has committed to create an $18 million fund to compensate and make amends to eligible claimants. Any amounts not used for claimants will be divided between charities that advance women in the video game industry or promote awareness around harassment and gender equality issues as well as company diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives as approved by the EEOC. End quote. The EEOC is the, uh, the, the, um, the, the institution that pushes forward the lawsuit, the Equal Employment right. Opportunity Commission. So this is a statement by Activision Blizzard. They actually managed to settle this lawsuit for $18 million. It's not quite clear. I, I found no indication in the statement, and it might be that it, this is still something that will follow. But they manage here. They will make amends to eligible claimants, it's not clear what that means, how they're going to determine whether someone is an eligible claimant, but they at least paid these 18 million US dollars. Yeah, so that's in maybe an escrow account or somewhere. It's being held for however they they eventually determine that should be divvied up. Exactly, yeah. And maybe we also to some important aspects on, on that settlement and that 18 million dollars. Um, First of all, $18 million sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. Like, for people like us, $18 million is a whole lot of money. 
Yeah. But as Kotaku points out, and we we will link all the articles that I drew from, all the articles that I researched from, we'll put all of these in the show notes so you can read up on these matters yourself. Kotaku points out that the controversial Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick, who is obviously held responsible for these things because they happened under his supervision, Mm. he will get a compensation this year in 2021 of 154 million US dollars. So there you can see the difference, right? $18 million and 154 million for Bobby Kotick. And it should be said too, 18 million split, right? It's not Mm. like, it's not like this is 18 million for each person deemed eligible. This is 18 million to be divided. So it does kind of put a sour taste in your mouth that Kotick is getting his incredible, you know, end of year bonus. Uh, Well, that's, yeah. It, this is in, initially we mentioned um, that it's hard to get away with such a lawsuit with a slap on the wrist. This this is basically a slap on the wrist for Activision way. Blizzard. It doesn't really hurt that much. From everything I can see in the in the comments sections where I, I read through what people think of it, it seems like the general opinion goes into the direction of okay, this is basically nothing. They pay that out of their back pocket and move on. Um, at the same time, though. It is important to emphasize that a settlement, at least as far as I'm aware, in the U.S. legal system, a settlement is not primarily there to punish the accused. It is there to compensate for damages, and it must happen in mutual agreement. So this is something where clearly the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that was advocating for these uh, the uh, women who are accusing Activision Blizzard they agreed to this settlement. That I, I, and again, I'm I'm no more a, a, an expert in American law than you are, Stefan. So <laughs> <laughs> take this take this with a grain of salt. But it's my understanding that yes, when you when you reach a settlement like that, it's to avoid a a, a judgment, basically, where yeah. it would be instead of um, a judge saying, "Okay, Activision Blizzard, you must pay X amount of dollars," they settle outside or they come to an agreement so that 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 doesn't have to happen. I think that the, the there's two things that frustrate me about that. One is that it does it, it does seem like you say just sort of a slap on the wrist or that they're almost getting away with something. And two, I, I again, I don't know how this works, but I believe that the American court system is very heavily based in precedent. When, when cases go to court and decisions are made, that sets precedent for future situations. I don't know that it works the same way with settlements when mm. they're they're not when a decision isn't made and it's just an agreement outside of court. So I wonder, you know, sure this is something that is in the public eye, but will this have any kind of effect really in the in the long run? As far as I'm aware it does not. I think um, it works more like um, both parties agree. They say like, okay, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll take these $18 million. We agree to the terms and then we're going to basically drop, uh, not, it's not dropping the charges, but then the court basically just affirms the settlement. I think it will be brought, brought before court and mm-hmm. then um, the judge will say like, okay, both parties agree. Then we put it to rest here and then you also don't have, as far as I'm aware, you don't have any uh, any possibilities to sue the company in the future for the same claims because it's already right. been settled. So I think it does not create a, prece- a precedent for uh, you know potential developments in the case law. Um, and it's also 
this is also part of the truth. It's a very complicated story because the very much as far as I as far as I'm aware with the U.S. legal system, it, it there is also quite some pressure, especially for private people against big corporations such as Activision Blizzard to go for a settlement because legal fees can be daunting, and Activision Blizzard might very well be. And this is my speculation, but I don't think it's a far-fetched one. Might very well be a company that says, "Look, we can give you these eighteen million dollars. You get them straight away, and you know we'll use that to pay for your damages and to support women in the industry. Or we can fight this out in court. We've got like two hundred high-paid, highly-paid lawyers, yes. and then we just see how it goes, you know, and what evidence actually there is. So I think." It is unfortunately the case that there is a lot of coercion at work, especially in the cases of such settlements. Yes, I think that's spot on. And without the um, the California group kind of being involved, I don't know that that settlement would have been reached um, mm. to begin with. Because exactly as you say, it's the word of these these women who are private people um, versus the 200 lawyers on retainer that Activision Blizzard may have, you know. And yeah. you're absolutely right. People have gone bankrupt with uh, taking things to court. They've gone into life-changing debt for for uh, cases that don't pan out. So I think you're right. I think people they take they take what's available to them. Um, and in this case, I think 18 million, of course, is better than nothing. But it, it is a frustrating situation because of the the power dynamics in play here. Yeah, well, at least there are some things, some announcements that for now sound relatively promising, at least. Uh, Bobby Kotick himself comments on that uh, on that settlement, and he says in, in that same announcement on businesswire.com, he says, quote, there is no place anywhere at our company for discrimination, harassment, or unequal treatment of any kind. And I'm grateful to the employees who bravely shared their experiences. I am sorry that anyone had to experience inappropriate conduct, and I remain unwavering in my commitment to make Activision Blizzard one of the world's most inclusive, respected, and respectful workplaces. End quote. That's going to be quite a ways to go there, but... Yeah. A <laughs> we'll action first, please. You know, there, I, is, yeah. there is some action, at least. There is some action, because Activision Blizzard also announced that they would make several changes to policies and training programs. They would implement some like anti-discrimination training programs in order to prevent further incidents of harassment. And they announced that they will appoint an external consultant to oversee this process. I think this is very crucial and we'll have to eventually see who this consultant will be and whether it's actually a truly impartial uh, consultant. But that's the only way. You need to really bring yeah. someone in there who's competent and who looks at all of these structures and all of the, the entire workplace culture and makes very clear that this can't go on. You know, I think this is uh, super important. Yes, and I, I do think that um, <laughs> I'm optimistic for that, in the sense that you mentioned earlier, that some of the lawsuits are coming from different, in you know, uh, investors, and you know, you've this has affected this has affected us financially. This huge blow up that's happened pu publicly and on social media, and so as cynical as it sounds to me, at least it, it does seem like okay, if someone is coming in from the outside to prevent those things from happening, I I'm optimistic that. Uh, the culture will change around that 
Um, but it, it's going to depend on who that is and how much they follow up with it and how open they are with these things. And, and I don't know, the, the track record is a little spotty there. Yeah, we'll have to just wait a little bit longer because as far as I'm aware, if I counted correctly, there are proper five lawsuits that are still filed against Activision Blizzard and this was only the settlement of one. Um, so we'll have to wait and see what comes of it, which changes will be implemented and whether these lawsuits will actually see um, the court. There is at least the fact that uh, the state against Activision Blizzard seems to be a very um, strong and very promising case. Uh, yes. We'll wait it out and we'll keep you in the loop dear listeners out there. Let's move on with number two to a completely different subject. Yes, a bit lighter. Uh, our our lovely uncle, Nintendo, <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's come to us with many treats. Well, the Nintendo Direct happened um, just over a week ago now, uh, maybe a little longer than that. Time is a flat circle and I'm losing my mind <laughs> about it. But um, I, uh, it was full of some interesting news as they always are. And I don't know about you, Stefan, but we've, uh, you know, Nintendo to me, because they're kind of the the biggest name in the game and it's, you know, they're, they're an old company and they have all of this sort of clout around them. Um, I always love the directs because it just, it comes off to me like they're just doing whatever they want. There, there doesn't seem to be any external influence. It's just look at what we have for you this time. And there's yeah. sort of a charm to that. <laughs> so, Please be excited. And then they like flick their yeah. hands like, and so um lots of uh fun excitement for you know there there were um a number of game updates i know animal crossing is has is having some kind of update coming out but i don't want to linger too long on all of the exciting updates because the maybe the the most controversial one is that uh the mario movie has been cast yes and uh we we know who will be playing the uh, titular Mario and his friends. And uh, it is it is something else in the sense that uh, the internet had quite quite a reaction to it. So, Well, yeah, maybe we can just say, shall I briefly read out the cast of the four please. main characters? Yes. So Mario will be played by Chris Pratt. Luigi will be played by Charlie Day. Peach will be played by Anya Taylor-Joy. And Donkey Kong by Seth Rogen. And of course, my personal favorite, Bowser, will be played by Jack Black. I, so first of all, what, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> I love Jack Black. It's, Me too. <laughs> I just when this when this Nintendo Direct was over, I could still see the portrait of Jack Black and, and <laughs> with his you know his pronounced beard and his yeah. very iconic voice. And I can't wait to hear Jack Black as Bowser. I think he's going to be amazing. It's not his yes. first time being in a video game. Uh, he's he's just simply such an entertaining guy. I loved you know uh, the Tenacious D. Uh, you know because. Jack Black is not only just an, an yeah. actor; he's also pretty amazing, like musician and and comedian. It's it's just amazing. I think he's a perfect cast for the role of Bowser. I I agree, and uh, he is one of my favorite um, celebrities. You know, for many yeah. different reasons. Tenacious D is one of my favorite bands, unironically. Um, oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I when I saw that, I was excited, and just like you, the the picture that honestly it looks like a mugshot, less than a headshot yeah. that they used for him. <laughs> but I think um, honestly, my my take on it is, uh, it looks fine. It looks like it'll be fun. That that voice cast. Um, 
I know that uh, uh, there was some, as there always is when there are uh, big animated movies that are coming out, especially recently, there is some general backlash around um, casting screen actors in voice acting roles. Mm. Um, and sort of taking those roles away from voice actors, the, the kind of in, uh, <laughs> the, the kind of in universe example here is that Charles Martinet, the voice of Mario and Luigi, um, is in this and he, he was kind of, uh, kind of cast off as almost a footnote in this, uh, um, this announcement where he said, oh, and he will also be there doing some voices. You could say that he's basically making a cameo. It seems that way. Yeah, maybe doing some background voices or something, but um, yeah. So the focus is more on these these stars like Chris Pratt and Charlie Day and uh, Jack Black and all these others that we mentioned. Keegan Michael Key, I think, is in it as well. Um, so I think that I, I don't really have a hot take on this, other than I enjoyed um, all of the YouTube and Twitter reactions of people uh, cracking up and losing their minds when these names were announced, but. I I think that uh, video game movies have such a bad reputation um, with their their history, things like the original Super Mario Brothers movie or the Mortal Kombat films, and I think they're always uh, yeah they're always passed off as kind of schlocky or you know um, not so good. But I don't know. I, I'm this seems like uh, some care and attention has gone into it. Yeah, and I must say I don't really I don't really see the issue with taking a, a voice actor's role um, and uh, or replacing a voice actor with a screen actor um, mm. because yeah, surely I mean these characters they never really had voices in a sense like That's um, true. of course there's Charles Martinet who does like you know uh, it's a me a Mario you know <laughs> it's like super iconic. But that won't carry a feature film, you know? Yeah, that's very and true. Bowser did not have any lines except for like, maybe, you know? <laughs> right. So I think maybe I should do it, you know? Maybe <laughs> <I> should... <laughs> you got the part. Well, I think, I think too, something that they forget as well is that um, these are all, everyone, with maybe the exception of Chris Pratt, everyone that they mentioned are very talented character actors. They're yeah. all... Um, uh, you know, Jack Black and Charlie Day, especially uh, Keegan Michael Key as well. So I think that um, I, I don't know that we necessarily have anything to fear. And who knows what a Mario movie would even look like at this point. So I think it's just exciting to have yeah. something coming out that they're excited about. It's definitely going to be better than the uh, the former movie. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, in that regard, they can only win. Shall we go through just quickly through some uh, remaining Nintendo news from that direct? Yes, because I have the I have the sheet open, and I saw one thing that I find very interesting and also peculiar for Nintendo. I must say is that they are going to add uh, Nintendo sixty four and Sega Genesis games, a selection of which, to the Nintendo Switch Online model. Because yes, you can obviously subscribe to a Nintendo Online, and um, it's like a monthly thing of like five five euro in Germany. I suppose five dollar in the in the US. Thereabouts. Um, and you need to pay extra in order to play N64 and Sega Genesis games. I'm not sure whether that is a smart idea. I, I love the function of the emulator on the Nintendo Switch, but yeah. couldn't have that been part of the online subscription? It's generally rather a bare-bones uh, subscription that doesn't offer much when it comes to features. This they could have integrated. 
I find that, yeah, it, it seems to me that Nintendo had a period where they uh, they gave away almost too much or they had too much of a selection with the, the Wii shop. Mm. Um, and of course you would buy those, those games, but it was, it was a, an incredible selection of basically anything that you, you wanted. And then I think some, some enterprising young person at Nintendo said, why don't we take that away and then give it back to people piecemeal? Mm. And that's how that feels to me. And you, you know how I feel listeners. I'm very, um, very much a, uh, game historian or librarian in the sense that I want these games to be available to people. And, um, I'm glad that they're going to be in a sense, but it, it frustrates me that it's behind this kind of paywall. Yeah. I feel the same way. No. What did you think of Kirby and the Forgotten Land, a new Kirby game that seems to be very much sailing in the winds of, uh, Super Mario Odyssey? Um, well, I think I'm a big Kirby fan. Um, mm. so I, I haven't played every game, but every game that I've played, I've really enjoyed. And speaking of the Nintendo 64, there was a, um, there was a, a kind of an attempt, I think, uh, at this, I can't remember the name of it. I'm blanking on it now, but it was the, um, the Kirby title for the N64 that was meant to be kind of a, uh, collect-a-thon and, and running through different worlds and things. And, um, that was a lot of fun. So I think, uh, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> bring it on do your best yeah. i mean it's uh, to me it, it doesn't seem as uh, as appealing and as uh um it doesn't seem as as appealing as super mario odyssey uh, it does do this thing of like you know converging a little bit of the like modern city life with the very unique animated form of what we could imagine to be a contemporary kirby game but I'm curious. I mean, Nintendo yeah. could definitely pull it off. It wouldn't be the first time that they do something. And I remember still with uh, Super Mario Odyssey when they trailered it and there was this huge T-Rex on the screen. Do you remember yes. that? That like, yeah. looked looked pretty terrifyingly real for a Mario game. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone just thought like, what the hell are they doing? And it worked out so well. Not to mention, uh, do you remember how uh, the reaction to seeing New Donk City and all the people in it that was yeah so who you never know in nintendo you got to play the game once it's out and see where it goes i i will say that the last uh announcement that i was i was very excited for um because this seems like uh i i I put this game almost with the work of suda 51 in the sense Mm. that you you never know when it's coming and yet when it comes you're excited and that's bayonetta 3 yeah yeah but another three that has been believed to be i think it was announced many years ago and then it was kind of believed to be dead and now it's shelved or something yeah Yeah. wasn't it wasn't it already at the time of the the wii u still like before the nintendo switch was released it was announced that there would be a bayonetta three and then it just kind of disappeared and now it's suddenly like hey here's bayonetta three and it comes out next year yeah i i think uh i think that's right because when bayonetta 2 came out it was they treated it like a big you know, okay, now it's it's a Nintendo property. We're going to do all these things with it. And then it just kind of died off. So happy to see it again. Um, I'll always play a Bayonetta game. But yeah, the, this is this is what I mean with these Nintendo Directs where was I expecting a uh, an open world Kirby game, um, Bayonetta 3 to be announced. And, <laughs> uh, I think also um, Deltarune Chapter 2 was announced, I think, oh, briefly yeah. before this, right? Right, I think, yeah, I definitely. Delta Rune Chapter 2, which is the sequel to the sequel of Undertale. Uh, <laughs> that was that was 
also announced as part of the Nintendo Direct, if I recall correctly. And that was amazing. That Delta, yeah. I just love Deltarune. I, well, I, I have yet to uh, dive into it because that's one of those games that I want to devote my entire, my entire brain to. So um, have you, have you uh, looked into it yet? Yeah, I played through the first Deltarune. Um, the amazing thing is just, it's entirely free. You know, this, this yeah. game is just free. Toby Fox is just like, lol, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I made this thing, do whatever you want with it. And I think uh, Deltarune is quite amazing. It's not quite Undertale. And I think it's very aware of that. I love yeah. that, you know, in the first Deltarune, for example, you may remember, just as a brief example, in, in Undertale, it's all about emphasizing the decisions that you make as a player. That's what the game emphasizes over and over to you. In Deltarune, there's a scene quite right at the beginning, I think, where a character just says, like, what do you think? Who do you think you are? Your decisions don't matter at all here. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of flair that it has. It's really cool. It is obviously an anagram of uh is it Undertale. an anagram of, of Undertale itself, like Deltarune? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And I'm looking forward to the second part. They are though um they are f- completely free, but they're also like relatively short like you can play them in let's say an evening two evenings and um and then yes. you're done i think he's he's been pretty clear about doing them in installments um yeah but yeah i so very very exciting stuff i am a little like we said a little peeved about the n64 situation but at, at least they're available somewhere you know um outside of uh <laughs> outside of piracy or going to a, an old game store and trying to find a cartridge because it still works. So you win mm. some, you lose some, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately I, I suffer a bit whenever I watch a Nintendo direct because, um, I'm not necessarily someone who's like super into, you know, technological pro uh, progress. I can definitely also play older games. I have no problem with that, Yakuza Like a Dragon, the game I very much love, is not a game that stands out by how technically uh, amazingly made it is. Like Absolutely It has its not, clunky yeah. sides. But the thing is that the Nintendo Switch is at this point um, so far behind what I'm used to on, on the PS5 that I struggle a bit. When I see a, a trailer, like with Bayonetta, for example. Bayonetta, mm. I think could be really it will probably be a really amazing game i do not have any concerns that it will be a great game but i just wish it had like the functions of comfort and fidelity that i'm acquainted with from the ps5 and that's why i'm still hoping that at some point nintendo will maybe come around and just update that switch just with computational power some additional ram in there uh, some ssd hard drive or something i don't know something of the sort to make this console, this wonderfully designed, perfect handheld console, uh, something that uh, that fits a little bit more into the into the time. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Especially for Bayonetta. <laughs> yeah, for Bayonetta. Oh man, I'm looking forward to that. We're gonna have to wait a little bit, dear listeners. Uh, you will not have to wait long for our next episode because it's gonna come out right next week. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, if you want to support us then you can do that in several ways. You can get Studying Pixels Plus, which you can find out more about at studyingpixels.com plus. You can also uh, help us by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts because otherwise the algorithm will simply drown us out with all the 50,000 podcasts that launch every week. And if you, especially in these early days, it's actually super helpful if you enjoy the show, just go around, you know, and just tell your friends about it. 
tell your friends about it, maybe share it on social media, do whatever you like uh, to tell people about that we exist because it's easy uh, to basically get drowned out in the vast array of this uh, weird internet that we live in. Of course, <laughs> you can submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com and then we're looking forward to talk again next week. See you then. See you then.